It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. All is fair in love and war. Miss Daphne Bridgerton. The time has come for the social season. Which young ladies might succeed at securing a match? You've always amused me, Miss Bridgerton. The Bridgerton series shattered records for Netflix and inspired fans to create and post Bridgerton-inspired works. Abigail Barlow and Emily Baer started out as two of those fans, posting Bridgerton-themed TikToks, which got millions of views, leading the pair to create the 15-song, unofficial Bridgerton musical. If this is what you call a honeymoon... Pacing around our separate rooms Running from our elaborate rules Widow, please forgive me your grace And at this year's Grammys, it won the Best Musical Theater Album. But when Barlow and Bear staged a sold-out performance of the musical at the Kennedy Center, Netflix decided that enough was enough, and after repeated objections, sued them for copyright and trademark infringement. My guest is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, is this considered a parody? I don't think so. Not even in the broadest definition of parody. It is clear that actual dialogue from the Bridgerton television show is used as lyrics. The characters on the stage were apparently dressed in costumes that were similar to the ones used in the television show. The settings were similar to in the television show. And the apparent intent and effect upon the audience was to recreate the Bridgerton television experience in a live performance with music. So I've been learning a lot about fan fiction with this lawsuit. So this would be a form of fan fiction. So, yes, this is clearly a fan fiction work. Fan fiction has been with us for decades now, and the legal standards relating to it are both crystal clear and sort of opaque. (laughs) There's this complete agreement and clarity with respect to the fact that 
fan fiction is a derivative work. And the Copyright Act of 1976, amongst the exclusive rights it conveys to copyright owners, is the exclusive right to produce derivative works. And there is no doubt whatsoever that this fan fiction is typically a derivative work and therefore constitutes copyright infringement, absent one of two things happening. And again, the law is clear on this. Either there has to be permission from the copyright owner to engage in producing the derivative work, or there has to be colorable claim of fair use under Section 107 of the Copyright Act. Now, that's the clarity we have here. Where things get a little bit opaque is with respect to how producers of original content engage with producers of fan fiction. And you see that here in this Bridgerton lawsuit in its most dramatic form. Over the years, producers of content have, to a certain extent, welcomed fan fiction in the sense that it creates a buzz about a work. There's no more powerful advertising marketing than word of mouth. And this is all free advertising for the original work, fan fiction. The problem arises when the creators of the fan fiction either engage in disparagement of the original work or they attempt to profit off the original work. And so there's this tension between the original producers of the content and the persons producing the fan fiction. And you see different producers of original content coming down different places on this. Paramount Pictures has always been a supporter of fan fiction with respect to its Star Trek series. You look at the other side, and there are many producers of original content. J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter series in particular has been fairly aggressive in attempting to stop it. Now, in that instance, there has been this adult or sexually explicit form of derivative works coming out of the Harry Potter series that, as I said, is disparaging and original content owners tend to be pretty harsh on that. But you see, the original producer's content are on both sides of this fan fiction, and that is where the opaqueness comes. We're pretty clear what the law should be, but then we get into this range of quasi-supporting it, quasi-not supporting it, and it's hard to draw lines there. So then does it appear that Barlow and Bear are using the intellectual property of Netflix without permission, constituting copyright infringement. So there's no doubt in my mind whatsoever that the plaintiffs here, Netflix, have established on the face of the complaint a prima facie case of copyright infringement as well as trademark infringement. The question we should be asking is, well, what's the defense that we're going to see from Ms. Barlow and Ms. Bear? And based on past cases in which fan fiction has been charged with copyright infringement, we typically see two defenses. One, that we had the implied authorization to do this, or two, that our use of the original work was a fair use and therefore protected from copyright infringement. Go through what a fair use analysis might look like here. So the fair use analysis in the context of fan fiction probably traces itself back to an old case involving Gone with the Wind, the epic book and motion picture. A true parody was done called The Wind Done Gone. And The Wind Done Gone took the story of Gone with the Wind and looked at it from the point of view of the slaves who were involved in that novel. And in a very real sense, it was a social commentary. And therefore, the 11th Circuit, when faced with a copyright infringement action against The Wind Done Gone, held that it was a fair use, that it was a transformative work, which is the key for fair use analysis. It transformed the original work in such a way that it contributed to societal good, essentially a commentary on the treatment of enslaved peoples during the Civil War. 
and therefore it was allowed. So that is essentially the approach that has to be taken in these fan fiction cases with respect to the fair use defense. Is the work sufficiently transformative that it accomplishes some sort of societal good as recognized in the Copyright Act? And I think you're going to be hard-pressed to see that here. This is not a parody. This is very much taking advantage of the original Netflix television series, Bridgerton, and attempting to exploit it. It is very different from the sort of transformative works that have been approved by the courts in the past. And I think this will be a very hard road for the defendants to pursue a fair use defense here. I think it's far more likely that they're going to have to pursue some sort of implied license defense. So how would an implied license defense work? So you see the elements of the implied license defense in this case in the actual complaint. The lawyers for Netflix have anticipated that that's the way the defendants will attempt to go in defending this quote-unquote unofficial musical Bridgerton. They repeatedly point out that, yes, there were discussions with Ms. Farlow and Ms. Bear about the fan fiction that they were producing. But in each instance, they carefully preserved the right and saying, we're not authorizing this. We're not going to do anything about it right now. And they always stopped short. So they wanted a little bit of this fan fiction without it going to the point of displacing their potential marketplace. And that's the tension that I talked about before that original producers of content have with producers of fan fiction. They want to have their cake and eat it, too. Now, here, I think Netflix made it clear throughout the discussions with Ms. Barlow and Ms. Baird that they were not authorized. And indeed, I assume that one of the things defendants will say as part of the defense is that, well, gosh, this has been going on for a year now, and they haven't done anything. And that is sort of a facially attractive, legally difficult to make defense, <laughs> because there is no obligation on the part of a copyright plaintiff to sue you at a specific time. The mere fact that you wait six months to a year to file a lawsuit does not really matter in this context where you're constantly sending out signals, we don't approve of this, we don't authorize that. What's particularly problematic here is that the unofficial Bridgerton musical and the merchandise associated with it came out about the same time that Netflix and the Bridgerton television people were thinking of moving in that direction. And therefore, it was displacing a legitimate market opportunity for the copyright hold. I know that a lot of these cases, or maybe even most of them, settle, but is there any impetus for Netflix to settle here? Hard to see unless the uh, defendants simply cave in and say, we give up, what do you want? Which, by the way, is not a scenario that I would discount. I think their legal position is very difficult. Copyright infringement lawsuits are expensive because they require special counsel. On the other hand, if I'm Netflix, I'm hard-pressed to see why I would settle for anything less than a complete surrender. Their legal position is very strong. And in my view, a pretty good case of willfulness on the part of the defense. In other words, they commit willful copyright infringement, which would entitle, if found, the Netflix folks to recover their attorney's fees. So the plaintiffs aren't really even going to be out their lawyers' fees because those are going to be paid for by the defendants. Now, the one thing that could force a settlement here is if Netflix comes to the conclusion that uh, Ms. Barlow and Ms. Bear are, for all practical purposes, judgment-proof, um, in, in which case they won't be able to recover their attorney's fees and probably will want to limit their own attorney's fees and, and just settle with them going away and giving up on this project. 
the amount of fan fiction out there is astounding. And TikTok, I mean, that's how they got started on TikTok. And I saw that the author, the Bridgerton author, Julia Quinn, in a statement said there's a difference between a TikTok composition and performing for commercial gain. So I guess once the money starts rolling in, that's where the line is drawn. That's absolutely true, Jim. But here in particular... They not just moved from the TikTok around, but they were moving directly into a market that was targeted by Bridgerton and Netflix. It, it is very common for movies and television shows in the current environment to become Broadway shows. I mean, we see this all the time. Lion King is a great example of that. Um, there's sort of this 360 view, as Disney would put it, of content where you, you repurpose it into different media. I mean, Star Trek. It was originally a television show. It was repurposed into movies and, and became even bigger. And so the threat that was posed here by the defendants to Netflix was taking away one element of that 360 view uh, of entertainment content, i.e. the opportunity to do um, a Broadway musical, as well as the merchandising that comes from that. And, and that's, that's why, at bottom, Netflix had to act at this point. They were losing a critical market component if they didn't act. Netflix is also claiming trademark infringement. What is the trademark? The trademark is Bridgerton, and the defendants have captioned their show that they put on at the Kennedy Center and plan to put on at the Royal Albert Hall in London later this year as the unofficial Bridgerton musical. So the Bridgerton name, which is trademarked, is just taken. Indeed, in the advertising, they actually put after the word Bridgerton the capital R in a circle indicating it's a registered trademark, <laughs> not to them, but to Netflix, which was kind of shocking. Thus, they acknowledged that they were taking a registered trademark. The argument the defense they would make is actually a little bit better, though, than the copyright defense. They will say that by putting in front of the word Bridgerton, the unofficial Bridgerton musical, they were indicating to people that it had no association or relationship with the Netflix Bridgerton television show. This is very common in trademark law. We see this all the time. The actual word usually used is unauthorized. And that may matter here. The fact that they went with the word unofficial instead of unauthorized may come back to haunt them. But trademark law is different than copyright law. And copyright law is intended to protect the creator of the original work. Trademark law is intended to protect consumers against being misled as to what they're buying. And so there's a different standard here. And the question is, will the people who bought tickets to the unofficial Bridgerton musical understand that they were not buying something that was associated with or related to Bridgerton, the television show? And if they can show that use of the word unofficial meant that people knew that it wasn't being put on by Netflix, then they might have an out from the trademark cause of action. Interesting. It's sort of brazen, but you know what? They got famous with this, so that's a big step no matter what happens. They got the Grammy and they move ahead. What the heck? There's no question that there's some talent here. Barlow and Ms. Bear have demonstrated a knack producing um, content that people are interested in, and perhaps they can parlay that into something in the future that does not involve uh, taking the hard work of copyright owners. The problem, there are a lot of people out there who are capable of writing music and lyrics, putting together work. The trouble is coming up with your own ideas <laughs> exactly. for characters and dialogue. And exactly. Setting. We'll see what happens with them and with the lawsuit. Thanks so much, Terry, as always. 
That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hair Love is an animated short film about an African-American dad who's attempting to style his young daughter's hair for the first time. When the film won an Academy Award in 2020, filmmaker Matthew Cherry used his time to talk about new legislation known as the Crown Act. Hair Love was done because we wanted to see more representation in animation. We wanted to normalize black hair. There's a very important issue that's out there. It's the Crown Act. That stands for creating a respectful and open world for natural hair. The law prohibiting discrimination against hairstyles and textures historically affiliated with race passed the U.S. House in March, but the bill has not yet been considered by the Senate. Still, 18 states have passed their own crown acts in the last three years, including some red states. California and New York were the first states to pass the measure only three years ago, and Massachusetts became the latest state on July 26th. Joining me is Chris Marr, senior correspondent for Bloomberg Law. Tell us a little about these black hair bias laws called crown acts. Sure. So these laws ban race-related hair discrimination. So we're talking about bias in the workplace or in schools most of the time against traditionally black hairstyles or textures. And so these are, these are laws that forbid employers and or public schools from discriminating against uh, things like dreadlocks and bantu knots and braids 
uh, and, and other hairstyles and textures that would be commonly worn by black students or black workers. So one of the co-sponsors of the Massachusetts measure, Democratic State Representative Brandy Fluker-Oakley, called the law a game-changer for black women. Can you explain what she meant? So her comments, and, and I've heard a lot of particularly black women make similar comments about these laws being passed in the state, point to this sort of pressure for for black workers and women in particular to to do things like chemically straighten their hair or or otherwise alter their hair from its natural texture to look what some employers would consider to be more professional but it's you know it's it's a biased expectation right that if if you have naturally black hair or naturally uh, black hair texture um to think of that as unprofessional and so that's kind of the the underlying bias that these laws are trying to root out to say, you know, black workers and black students should be able to, to wear their hair in, in natural texture or, or in these traditionally sort of protective hairstyles uh, without facing negative consequences at work or school. So does that mean that employers with, let's say, sales staff can't require employees to tie their hair back or you know, if they're working in a, in a restaurant, wear a hairnet? So the, the details of each state law vary somewhat, but in a lot of cases they do allow for health and safety-related requirements, such as tying the hair back or wearing a hairnet. Um, the, these protections are against really specifically race-related hair policies, um, and so if, if it's health and safety related or it's, or it's neutral and, and not race specific, then g- generally employers could still enforce hair policies within their dress code. Uh, one employment lawyer I talked with gave the example of, uh, you know, this doesn't mean you have to hire a person with blue hair, you know, because that's not related to race, right? Is it mainly blue states that are enacting these laws? So blue states have really led the charge. Uh, California and New York were the first to enact uh, a version of the Crown Act uh, back in 2019. And so the, the majority of the states are those with Democratic majority legislatures. But we have begun to see some re- Republican majority legislatures uh, get in on the act as well. So uh, Louisiana, for example, uh, has a new law that, that just took effect uh, August 1st. Tennessee and Alaska also have passed versions of this, although, you know, sometimes in, in, in a narrower way of the Alaska bill, which is awaiting the governor's signature there, uh, would only deal with discrimination at school, not uh, workplace discrimination. And the House passed a national version of the Crown Act in March. So, Chris, tell us about the Crown Act and how it came about. So the Crown Act, uh, the Crown stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. And, and this is something that a, really a, a coalition of, of advocacy groups uh, came up with and, and have been pushing for uh, in states and at the federal level um, and, and, have, and have had, you know, pretty, pretty good success. And in my opinion, you know, within just a matter of three years now, we've got 18 states. Uh, that have adopted this, uh, Alaska will make 19 if, if the governor signs the bill there. Is there a real push to get this through in the Senate? Because I haven't heard much about it. 
Right, and I'll confess I don't cover Congress closely. I, I focus more on the states. Um, I, I talked with a colleague of mine while I was working on this, and who does cover Congress, and her sense was that it's it's just sort of on ice. You know, there there's so many other priorities in the Senate. No, it's not easy to get anything through the Senate these days. Now, what about the possible impact on employers? Are they expected to see more lawsuits then based on this? Right. So it, so it does create another category of uh, potential discrimination lawsuits against employers. Um, well, I should say in state laws vary. In some states, uh, employees could bring a lawsuit. In other states, they would bring a complaint through the state labor commissioner or some other state agency, which would then you know, handle some sort of resolution process. But yes, it does create the potential for more discrimination claims against employers. And so, you know, they will need to review their policies and, and think about how they want to train their, uh, their managers who, who handle hiring and firing discipline. I want to turn to another issue involving labor law, and that's non-competes. Businesses often require employees to sign non-compete agreements, which prevent them from leaving and going to a competitor. And you write about a trend in states to ban non-competes for lower- and middle-income employees and hourly workers. D.C. has just passed a law which is going to go into effect on October 1st. Tell us about that. Right. So the District of Columbia has, has passed a law now that will ban almost all employee non-compete contracts for workers who make less than $150,000 per year. Uh, and there are a few narrow exceptions in there, for example, related to the broadcast industry. Uh, but by and large, that means employers won't be able to have their workers sign a contract saying they, they can't go to work for a competing company unless they make more than $150,000 a year. And that's, that's kind of the starting threshold, and it will be increased each year based on inflation after the law takes effect. Do you know how they reach that 150? Because that is pretty substantial. Right. It's a, it's a higher figure than most states have gone with. It may be the highest. I think Washington State went higher for independent contractors who are not considered employees. But other than that, I, I do believe the 150000 is the highest threshold uh, that any state has set. So I, I'm not sure how they came up with that number, but it, I think it was intended as a little bit of a compromise because the council originally passed the law back at the end of 2020, and it never took effect. They, they delayed it sort of indefinitely, but, but that law would have banned virtually all non-competes regardless of the employee's income level. Explain the trend in these laws, why states are passing them. Sure. So uh, I guess the theory with with having employees sign non-competes is that the employer is trying to protect uh, some sort of trade secret or or confidential company information. They don't want an employee to leave the, the company and go work for a competitor and take that sort of sensitive competitive information to the competing company. You know, within the last few years, it, it's become sort of better understood that a lot of the workers being asked to sign these non-competes really don't have access to trade secrets or, or confidential information. There were, you know, reports going around a few years ago, for example, that, uh, you know, sandwich chains like Jimmy John's were asking <laughs> their, 
you know, the restaurant workers to sign these non-competes. And, and you know, you kind of scratch your head and think, well, what's, what's the reason for that? Uh, although companies still sometimes argue, well, we've, we've invested money in, in training the employees, and so we don't want them to take that those sort of skills and training that we've spent money on and, and take it to another company. Um, but so, so there's kind of a, a movement among states. It's, uh, I think 11, at least 11 states now, plus the District of Columbia, have passed a law that uh, bans non-competes based on some income level. And, and those originally started with the idea of, of protecting low-income workers. Uh, but of course, you know, we can see with D.C. that has, you know, moved up beyond just low-income workers. Uh, and now, and with DC and also Colorado, which passed a new law this year, the thinking is more in line with we're only going to allow non-competes for highly compensated employees. Uh, Colorado set the threshold at a hundred thousand, and now DC has set it at one hundred and fifty thousand. Thanks so much, Chris. That's Chris Marr, senior correspondent for Bloomberg Law, and that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.